Good morning. How are we doing, 11 o'clock? Hey, glad to see the rain didn't keep you away, even though it's just, is it still raining outside? Kind of sprinkly, or in California, as we call it, a torrential downpour that destroys cities and people forget to learn how to drive in this situation. Hey, if you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to go into our time of teaching. If you would, open up those programs you got. Inside, you're going to see a green and white message note sheet. That sheet is a great tool to help you follow along with the message and also to be able to jot down anything uh, the Lord might be prompting you to remember. Now, before we jump into our time of teaching, I got to do some full disclosure here. I am very, very excited about the passage we're going to be covering today. But you also need to know this passage has been kicking my butt. It's been challenging me. It's been challenging my worldview. It's been challenging the size of Jesus in my eyes. But what I love about these difficult passages is that it just prepares us to be a brighter light in our culture. And so as we go into our time of teaching today, I think this passage is going to be challenging for many of us. But understand what the Lord is trying to do. He's growing us to be, he's growing us to make more of an impact in his name. Amen? So let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you for your word, that in your word you reveal yourself. In your word you teach us. In your word you rebuke us as needed as a loving father. In your word, you encourage us, you challenge us, you grow us, you empower us. Father, thank you for your written word. Thank you that is the only word that is living and active. Thank you that through it, from the beginning to end, we see the message and power of Jesus in your word. And so today, as we continue looking at the Apostle Paul, as we continue looking at the early church in Acts, continue to show us that the times that they lived in are not that much different than the times we live in now but continue to show us that through your word, you've given us this example that in the face of a hostile and aggressive culture, that the word of Jesus is more powerful still and it spreads. Teach us to be more, teach us to be brighter lights. Teach us to be more of your witnesses, Father, in your son's name. Everyone said, amen. So again, if you're brand new, let me just take a few moments and do a quick recap. This morning, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be concluding the series we've been in for the last several weeks called Scent Piercing the Darkness. Now, this series has actually been the fourth mini-series in a longer study on one of the most important books of the entire Bible, the book of Acts. Now, in this series, we've specifically been following the Apostle Paul as he's been spreading the word of Jesus in the, gen- in the Gentile Roman world. But over the last couple of weeks in particular, the Lord has called Paul to return to Jerusalem. Now, not only has the Lord called Paul to come back to Jerusalem, he's let him know, honestly, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be faced with severe hardships. And if you're with us, you remember that some of Paul's friends were getting prophecies of how hard this was going to be. And they're warning him, don't do this. This is going to be bad. But the apostles submitted to the will of God and he came back to Jerusalem. And if you were here last week, we saw that as he returned to Jerusalem, everything went as expected. He was arrested. He was speaking on the steps of the temple as he was being led away. He shared the message of Jesus. He shared that the message of Jesus is not just for Jews, but Gentiles. And a riot broke out. Paul was about to be flogged, and last week Michael talked about that in excruciating detail of what a Roman flogging is. But in that moment, he asked, is it legal to do that to a Roman citizen? And the commander took him away to safety. So if you were here last week, you remember there was an intensity in the situation, right? 
And so that intensity continues because we are picking up that scene on the next morning. See, this Roman commander is confused. He doesn't understand the crimes that Paul is being charged with. So what he's going to do is he's going to command what we call the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council at the time, to gather together, not for a formal trial, but for a pre-trial, if you will. A time to gather information because he wants to know from them what is Paul's crime. So that's where we're going to be picking up today. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Acts chapter 23. And if you're following along in your note sheet, we are, we're going to be in the section titled The Sanhedrin Riot. Now, as you're turning there, let me clarify a little bit more of what we mean, what the Sanhedrin is. At the time, this was the highest Jewish ruling council. It was composed of 71 Jewish elders and leaders that were for, represented the two major political parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had jurisdiction over um, civil and certain criminal matters when it came to Jewish law. Now, they had a lot of restrictions because of the Roman government. They could, not dec- they could not carry out capital crimes or death, which is why when Jesus was before them, they needed the Romans to declare him, to declare his execution. So if you think about this, there is probably not too many other hostile, more hostile audiences for Paul to be before. Because what is the crime that they're accusing Paul of? Blasphemy. See, in the Jewish world, there's not really a much higher crime. Paul is saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Blasphemy. Not only is he saying that Jesus is the Messiah, but to them, that false God is saying that these Gentiles, these non-Jewish, these less than us people have a part in the kingdom of God? Blasphemy. And so what we're going to see is Paul is about to, as he was last week, Paul is being confronted with significant hostility and uh, aggression towards his faith in Jesus. But the example that Paul has always given us is one that is consumed by Jesus, even in the face of hostility. So let's begin reading. In chapter 23, verse 1, Luke writes, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers... He addresses them as equals. He addresses them as family. He shows a level of care. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Would you underline or highlight that phrase he says? I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now let's unpack that because that is a bold opening statement. See, the word duty, the Greek word, translates to civic duty or being a good citizen. And so think about it. The same word could be applied if we were to say, I'm doing my civic duty or I'm a good citizen of the United States. So here's the point that Paul is making. Even though he is a proud Jew, Even though he is a proud Roman citizen, what Paul is saying is that the highest calling on his life, there is nothing more important than his citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus. And he goes on to say that he serves Jesus, the mission God has called him to be with a clear conscience. Now understand, Paul is not saying that he's blameless or perfect, 
But what Paul is saying is it's similar to what he was saying on the temple steps last week. If you remember last week, he shared his story and he said that his conscience used to persecute Christ followers. That in his conscience, he used to think the best way to serve the Lord God was by hunting followers of Jesus. And he says that his conscience was wrong and it took Jesus, a divine intervention, to clear that. And so he's sharing his story. He's sharing of the man he used to be. And he says that he's not damned by that because of the repentance and grace found in Jesus. Even though he's imperfect, he has a clear conscience. But not only that, he says he is fulfilling his duty, meaning that he is all in when it comes to Jesus. 100% committed. Now, given as we talked about the audience he's speaking to, how well do you think this is going to go over? So as we continue to read Verse 2, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you, violate, yet you yourself violate the law by, the commanding, by commanding that I be struck. So a couple things to underline there. Underline whitewashed wall. Because it's, it's an important piece of these. First of all, let's talk about the high priest, Ananias. What we know from history, such as a Jewish historian named Josephus, this guy was a piece of work. We know that he was ruthless. He was power hungry. He was very much, he was very much on the team of the Romans, which most of the Jewish people viewed as the oppressors. He was somebody who cared more about political power than his theological beliefs. So he would enforce theological beliefs as long as it continued to give him power. And so in this case, Ananias had Paul struck because to him, Paul is committing blasphemy. Jesus is not the Messiah. But in doing that, he broke their own law. See, Paul has not been formally charged this is not a formal, this is not a formal trial. He is presumed innocent until found guilty. And yet Ananias is so enraged by what he sees as Paul's sin that to him it justifies his ability to sin because, well, his sin is bigger than mine. And what does Paul do? Paul calls out the injustice, right? He makes a very strong statement towards their hypocrisy and a strong warning that God will judge you for this. See, whitewashed wall is a term we've seen before in Scripture. Jesus used this whitewashed tombs to refer to the religious leaders himself. The Old Testament prophets such as Ezekiel talked about hypocrisy. It means that it's, it's talking about a structure that there's been a coat of white paint to make it look good, but on the inside it's empty, disgusting, ready to collapse. He's calling out that they are fake. And Paul isn't cursing them in that moment to say lightning will come and get you, but he's warning them. He's saying the Lord is going to deal with you severely with your, because of your hypocrisy. Now, do you feel the emotions in the Apostle Paul? As you're reading this, don't you feel like going, yeah, Paul, good job, because he's in the right, isn't he? He's calling out injustice. He's standing up for truth, and I agree with all of that. Now, because of that, that makes what happens next not only extraordinary, but absolutely unexpected. Verse 4, 
Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Verse 5, Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Paul is now quoting the book of Exodus, For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul apologized. What does he have to apologize for? That's the honest question that I find myself asking. He called out injustice. He called out hypocrisy. So why is he apologizing to the high priest? Now, he says he didn't recognize the high priest. Again, it's a pre-trial. The high priest probably wasn't in his, traditional, in his traditional outfit. Also, over the last 20 years, Paul hasn't really been to Jerusalem that many times, so he probably has never encountered Ananias. But why is Paul apologizing? And what we see is a key point of our entire message that Paul is so consumed by Jesus that he is committed to love and value what Jesus loves and values. And one of the things that Jesus loves and values is his word. See, Paul is committed to the word of God, meaning the word of God is is the authority in his life. Therefore, he will submit to it, whether He agrees with it, regardless of his emotions, even whether he's in the right. He will submit to the word of God because it is God's very word. And so Paul isn't apologizing to Ananias, necessarily. He's apologizing to the position because of what the word has spoken to the position. We're going to come back to that later, but that's an extraordinary commitment to God's love, to God's word. As we continue, verse 6, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Would you underline hope of the resurrection of the dead? Something that I thought was so beautifully put that Michael said last week, was that when Paul is on the temple steps and he shares his story, his testimony, how Jesus has changed his life, what Paul is doing is he's using his story to take the message of Jesus and enter the Jewish narrative. What Paul is doing here is he's doing that as well. He's speaking to the Pharisees, again, as equals, as family. He says, my brother, and he's talking about their theological beliefs. Believe it or not, despite the legalism, the Pharisees represented the normative beliefs in in the nation of Israel at the time. And he talks about the fact that, hey, the Pharisees are often seen in Scripture as the antagonists to the message of God, right? They're often the roadblocks. They're often the villains and many times rightfully so. But the Pharisees weren't all bad. In fact, the way the Pharisee movement began was a very devout movement uh, committed to Yahweh, committed to Yahweh, committed to living out his commands. And one of the beliefs that the Pharisees and the people of Israel held onto was that the Messiah would resurrect, that the Messiah would come and give his people a new life. And for the Pharisees, One of the most beautiful pictures of this belief came out of the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord shows this prophet a valley of dry, dead bones. 
And he tells the prophet to pray, and when he does, the Lord restores the body to these bones. And then he tells the prophet to pray again, and when he does, the Lord fills these bodies with his spirit. He gives them life. And in Ezekiel 37, 12, he says of the nation of Israel, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. See, as the people of Israel waited for Messiah, they hoped for a resurrection. And so when Paul says resurrection, he is entering their narrative. But they also know that when Paul says resurrection, he is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying the hope you have in resurrection has been found in the resurrection of Jesus. Messiah has come. Messiah does resurrect. He is here. And just as I've discovered that and been made brand new, he wants to do that to you as well. Now again, and I've been using this word a lot, this is extraordinary because Paul is before enemies. They are hostile towards him. They have already struck him. They're mistreating him. And what is he doing? He is still filled with love for them that he shares the hope and message of Jesus with them. Now again, as we've seen, as he talks about the hope of Jesus, this is not received well. So as we read in verse 7, when Paul had said this, a dispute, would you underline the word dispute? That's the Greek word stasis, which literally means riot. As Paul said this, a dispute, a riot broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees says that there, say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, we find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent, which underlined the word violent, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So let me unpack that a little bit. Let's, to understand what's going on, it kind of reflects politics today. It would be safe to say, wouldn't it, that the major political parties in the United States, the Republicans and the Democrats, do not get along. Would that be safe to say? Now, if you ever see any gathering where they're together, look at Congress or the House of Representatives, you know that there are certain issues that you don't even have to talk about the issue. You just have to say the name of the issue and everything goes to hell in a handbasket, right? Right? That's what's going on here. See, the political parties of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, did not get along with each other. There was severe tension, and a lot of the reason why is they were extremely divided on theological beliefs, one of the core ones being this belief in the resurrection. Again, the Pharisees held the normative Jewish view that the Messiah will resurrect. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in in what's called the altered state, altered state, meaning angels and demons. In fact, they often didn't believe in much of the supernatural of what God did. They would view those beliefs as absurd. And so Paul is here trying to share the message of Jesus, but the fact that he says resurrection, not just of Jesus, but just resurrection in general, is like dropping a bomb on their proceedings. Because there's no civil discord, there discourse, there is an all-out riot. 
And it's interesting that even in the midst of this riot, you see some Pharisees who are open to what Paul is saying, right? That's amazing that they're going, hey, we may not believe in Jesus, yet is my subtext, but what if he has a divine commission? Maybe we should listen to him further. But they couldn't have that discourse because everything was breaking apart. Think about it. A Roman commander, a soldier, somebody who sees war was worried that Paul would be torn apart. That has to tell you how bad it got in the Sanhedrin. And as we continue, he removed Paul from the situation. And in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Would you put a box around that word? Something to highlight that. Take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, can we stop for a moment and can we try to emotionally connect with the Apostle Paul? This has got to be a low point in his life. See, some of you know full well that just because you know you're going to face hardship doesn't make it any easier to go through. And what has happened to the Apostle Paul, in a sense, as he's come home to his Jewish brothers and families, he's tried twice to share with them the truth of Jesus, and both times they've ended with riots and hostility. Both times that the Apostle Paul has tried to unify with the message of Jesus, he's been met with a sinful disunity. The Apostle Paul is likely reflecting on his entire ministry. See, he's been imprisoned before. He's been in riots before. He's been stoned and hurt. He's likely has scars on his body because of his testimony in Jesus. And as a human being, seeing what happens every time he attempts to spread the word, he's got, you got to wonder if he's sitting there going, is this even worth it? Am I just not doing it right? God, is there any hope for these people? He's having a very honest moment that many of us have had. And the beauty of this verse is that we see what does Jesus do? He enters that danger with him. Jesus himself shows up and he says the words, take courage. Now, one of the beautiful parts of Scripture is that Scripture is for us as well. So hear me clearly, whatever your story, whatever your hardships, whatever your adversity, whatever you've lost or suffered for the name of Jesus, the Lord God, the risen Messiah is saying those words to you today, take courage. Because just as he told Paul, the message is true to you, your witness matters. Even if it doesn't seem like you're making a difference. Even if it doesn't feel like it, the words of God are true for you as well. Take courage, Christ follower, because your witness matters. And so as we go into the next day, the scene shifts and it gets more aggressive towards Paul. Verse 12, the next morning, some of the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath. Maybe underline the word oath, not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. 
Again, we're seeing an example that these zealous Jews were so enraged by what they perceived to be Paul's sin that that totally justified their own sin. I'm so mad at his sin that that makes me murdering okay. And the thing is, this is the temptation we face today too, where we are so mad at the sins of others that we feel that justifies our sins, whether it's our words or violence or wherever it may be, that the example we're given is that's not the way we do things. And they swore an oath that's very shades of the Old Testament, where they're saying, God, we love you and we will not rest until this enemy against you is removed. Now, their plan is actually fairly ingenious. To get him away from Roman protection, they got some of the Sanhedrin leaders to call him to an interrogation. They're going to murder him on the way to that interrogation so that the Sanhedrin leaders have deniability. But once again, we're going to see God's hand on Paul's life protecting him and saving him. So as we continue to read... Verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul. Now let's stop right there. This is just a simple verse that sometimes we gloss by, but there's something pretty extraordinary in here. Paul has family. (laughs) And it sounds odd to say, but this is the first time in scripture it's ever blatantly talked about his family. Now we assume the Apostle Paul has family. See, remember, he was an adult when Jesus, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, meaning in the culture he lived in, he probably has family. Some people think maybe he was married as well. We don't know for sure. But other than some indirect, indirect references to his parents in the chapter before, we really know nothing about his family. What we can assume, and it's a healthy assumption, is that his family disowned him because of his belief in Jesus. Paul talks later in the New Testament that he lost everything in the name of Jesus. And family is probably one of it. But what we see from here is a little frustrating because Luke has a habit of doing this, of introducing characters with no explanation and no background. See, to Luke, it probably wasn't that big of a deal, but to students of the Bible, I'm like, tell me more. So what can we uh, infer from this? Well, Paul likely had a sister living in Jerusalem. And maybe, we don't know to what extent, but they were maybe on familiar terms. For whatever reason, this nephew not only knew who Paul was, but cared about him. But again, Luke doesn't tell us how this nephew heard about the plot. He doesn't tell him, is he overheard it? If it was divine revelation, if he was just in the right place at the right time? He just tells us that he heard about it and he went and told Paul. So as we continue to read, verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander, he has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand. What an act of gentleness. Took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So a couple things here. First of all, this kid has an amazing memory, doesn't he? 
because he remembered things in such great detail. But secondly, once again, we're seeing that God is using the Roman commander to protect the life of his servant. This commander seems to have taken a liking to Paul. He at least views him as a Roman citizen of some significance. And again, he doesn't understand why he's in trouble in the first place. So what this commander is going to do is he's going to carry out a rescue mission. Jerusalem is too dangerous for Paul. The Jews want him dead. So what he's going to do is he's going to round up the troops, literally, and they're going to take him 70 miles away to the Roman area of Caesarea. There Paul can be before the governor, and there he will be safe. So what he's going to do, again, he's going to round up the troops, and then he's going to write a letter to the governor in Caesarea, Governor Felix, to prepare him for what's going on. So as we read in verse 23, Then he called two of the centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at at, at 9 tonight. So again, let's do the quick math. 470 soldiers protecting Paul. Now, it may sound like overkill, but to this commander, he sees Jerusalem as as about to go to war against Paul. So he's ready to protect them against an entire city if need be. Provide horses for Paul so he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And then he begins to write a letter. He wrote a letter as follows, verse 26. Claudius Lysias, the name of the commander, to his excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Now let's stop right there. If you were here last week, did something strike you a little weird of how he's retelling the story? See, he is telling the governor, he is painting himself as having always known that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he rode in and saved him. He's trying to look good to his boss. In other words, he's covering his butt. Because when did he really find out that Paul was a Roman citizen? As he was about to flog him. Now, this guy does seem like a stand-up dude because of the way he's taking care of Paul, but it's an interesting human element, isn't it? He goes on to write, verse 28, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, underline this, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Very similar to Jesus, wasn't it? That the Roman officials were going, what, what is his crime? When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. Verse 31, so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. That was about halfway, about 30, 35 miles. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. So at this point, they were safe from Jerusalem, so he didn't feel that they needed all 470. So he sends about half of them back, and the rest of them are going to continue to Caesarea. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. It's likely that the governor was trying to get out of presiding over this trial. And he's basically saying, maybe he's not in my jurisdiction. Learning that he was from Cilicia, which is his jurisdiction, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So that's our passage, and it kind of does end on a cliffhanger. We're going to pick up with Paul and his trial before Felix in a couple of weeks when we come back to the book of Acts. But in the time that we have left, well, again, I want to point out that Paul has always modeled for us what it looks like to be consumed by the love of Jesus. And in this passage, 
passage in particular, he models that in the face of severe hostility and aggression towards him because of his belief in Jesus. And so the first thing I want to unpack is there's a big picture principle that Paul models for us in this. So if you're following along your note sheet, you've got a section titled One Core Truth, and your fill-in is this, a consumed life is one that is totally surrendered. A consumed life is one that is totally surrendered. Let me unpack what I mean by that. Christ followers in this room right now, when you gave your life to Jesus, you did that in an act of beautiful surrender. What you said is you've realized that when I did life my own way, it led me to sin, death, and destruction. And in that act of surrender, you said, my life is no longer mine, but it is yours, Jesus. You committed to living life his way as a child of God. And that was the beginning of a beautiful journey that will last throughout eternity. But what you committed in that act of surrender by saying that my life is no longer mine, but my life is yours, you are saying that when it comes to Jesus, I am now all in. 100%. In fact, would you put a box around the word totally on your fill-in? That's what it means to give our life to Jesus. See, what happens when we give our lives to Jesus is, I like how Michael puts it, the Holy Spirit doesn't simply come into our lives, but he invades our lives. And now we overflow the risen Spirit of God. And so there is not a single area or aspect of our lives that is not impacted by the Spirit of God in us. See, we are all into Jesus because he is a God that was all in for his people first. Now, in this specific passage, what Paul is modeling is that as Christ followers, that in the face of adversity, in the face of hardship, our faith in Jesus is not something that we can simply turn on and off at will. This is key. Paul is modeling in this passage that our faith in Jesus is not something that we can turn on and off. We are called to be all in, totally in. But let me tell you why this is becoming an issue. See, we're living in a culture that increasingly is sending this message. It's fine that you're religious. It's fine that you have faith in Jesus. And you know what? That can be a beautiful thing, but that really should be a private thing. That shouldn't be something you bring into the public square. That shouldn't be something you bring into the workplace. That shouldn't be something you bring into relationships or even even cultural morality or anything like that. If you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. And in fact, more and more we're hearing voices sending this message that, yeah, believing in Jesus is fine, but sometimes you need to put your Christian faith to the side if you really want to get the job done. And the truth is, we begin to believe this lie in church. We begin to believe that we can segment or section off our faith in Jesus, and we begin to pick and choose what of Jesus we follow and what we don't. We are not all in, we are partly in, and what happens is we stop following the real risen Jesus, and instead we follow an idol of our choosing. See, in adversity, in hostility, especially when it's towards our faith, 
There's a very real temptation, one that I still feel as well as many of you. There's a temptation in hostility to hide who we really are, isn't there? There's a temptation in hostility to hide that we are believers in the risen Jesus. There's a temptation to not speak up at times when it would be appropriate. There's a temptation to hide that we go to church or are part of a life group. There's a temptation to not admit that we base our life on the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes the temptation is so great that to hide that we are believers in Jesus, we give in to sin. We give in to the dark side so that we don't look weird or we're not perceived as one of those Christians or something along those lines. But whatever it is, we find a temptation to shut off our faith. And the motto we have of Paul is Christ followers. When it comes to Jesus, there is nothing in our lives. There is no situation, no hardship, no time of good, no goodness that is cut off from who Jesus is. I love how one pastor put it recently. He said, you're either dead or you're alive. There's no partly. We're called what it means to be consumed is not a life of perfection, is not a life where we don't struggle, but it's a life of commitment that I am all in. Despite my flaws, God will grow me, and I am totally in. I love how Francis Chan, a popular pastor, puts it there on your note sheets. The idea of holding back certainly didn't come from Scripture. The Bible teaches us to be consumed with Christ and faithfully live out His words. The Holy Spirit stirs in us a joy and peace when we are fixated on Jesus, living by faith and focused on the life to come. Look at the example of the early church as we've spent significant time in Acts. They faced a hostile culture, one that frankly isn't much different than what we face today. And because these flawed and imperfect people were so committed to the risen Jesus, what happened to his movement? It grew. In the midst of hostility, it grew. When we stay committed, when we say, I am all in no matter what, in times of adversity, what we see is Jesus becomes richer and deeper in our own lives, but that also screams a louder testimony in our world that the risen Jesus, the Messiah is here, is real, and loves you as much as he loves me. That's what it means to be totally surrendered. Now, With that, that being the big picture, Paul modeled two specific acts in this passage of what does a consumed Christ follower look like. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled Paul's Two Examples. And your first fill-in is this, a consumed Christ follower is consumed by a passion for God's word. Is consumed by a passion for God's word. There on your notes, you look at how Jesus put it. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a quotation out of Matthew, but Jesus is quoting the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Jesus is showing a complete picture that from the very beginning, God has always valued his word and specifically his written word. And I love the picture that Jesus paints, this picture of food. Now, you know me. You know I love to eat. You know I love food and I'm not one to miss a meal. So think about it. Why do we eat? We eat to sustain us. We eat to grow us. We eat to give us energy. Let's put it in a more blunt fashion. We eat so we don't die, right? 
Because what are you like when you miss a meal and you're hungry? I can only speak for myself, but I become a miserable human being. (laughs) Cranky, I lack energy, I become apathetic, I start falling asleep on my desk, I don't want to do anything. Nourishment changes that, right? So the picture that Jesus is painting is just how we need to eat, not only to sustain us, but to give us life. Spiritually, we need to eat from God's written word. We need to eat from scripture because spiritually, it will nourish us. It will grow us. It will sustain us. It will lead us to life. Now, if you've been with us in this journey through Acts, this is a topic that has come up repeatedly in Acts, hasn't it? And what you see, it has come up many times because the early church needs us, the church of today, to be to understand that the word is essential to our mission and to being a light in the dark place. The word is essential to us being sent Christ followers because here's the danger the early church is warning us if. If we devalue God's word, then what we really devalue is Jesus himself. See, if I humble myself and look at the truth of my life, what I realize is how I treat God's written word is a pretty good indicator of how I truly treat Jesus. Because he values his word. It is living and active. He has revealed himself in his word. He has shown us his love and care in his word. He has given us a model for how to now live, not a soulless set of rules, but to live as reflections of him, to live as children of God. He has given us something beautiful, and he asks us not just to know about it, but to submit, to obey it, because that is the path to life. And it's hard to walk with Christ well without valuing what he values. It'd be like me saying that I love my wife, that my wife is my best friend and I can't get enough of her, but every time she opens her mouth to talk about anything, I don't listen. Now, some of you would hear that and go, well, that's probably a good indicator you don't really love your wife. And it's true when it comes to our faith. This is the word of God that has been given to us. And in the midst of adversity, as Paul shared, it is our encouragement that God is with us. Again, it is in the word that the Lord sends us the message he sent to Paul, take courage because your story matters. It is in trials and adversity where we meet with Jesus in his word and he continues to share us that he's, we are going to do things in his power, that he is with us, that he has not abandoned nor forsaken us. I like how Chuck Swindoll, an old school pastor that I love, puts it on your note sheet. Often in the midst of great pain, on the heels of mistreatment, the Lord appears in his word, providing peace through his spirit. Authority works in two ways. Not just as the word our authority that we submit to, but the word is a constant reminder that even in a dark and untrusting culture, God is still the authority above it all. That he is still sovereign. And I know that And I'm reminded of that and I'm encouraged of that through his work. 
Now, again, I've talked about this a few times from up here. Michael has talked about this a few times. So I'm not really going to unpack the how and the, the how and the how and the details on how to get started. All I'm going to do is give you this charge. Christ followers, we cannot be a light in the dark if we devalue the very word of God. But when we allow God to change our heart towards his word, imagine how much brighter our lights become in a dark place. So the first model that Paul gave us in adversity, that a consumed Christian values the word of God. Now with that, the word of God, the commands in the word of God sometimes are easy to follow and sometimes they're very, very challenging. And when they're challenging, it's not meant for us to feel bad about ourselves, but for us to see that there is a bigger, a different purpose for our lives. So that leads us to our next villain. Being a consumed Christ follower means being consumed by a love for our enemies. Being consumed by a love for our enemies. Now, I wrote this so I can edit this, so I'm going to ask you to add a word, please. Being consumed by a supernatural love for our enemies. All right, let's have some honest talk. Does that phrase not send shivers up your spine? It does for me. Does this idea, does this command not go against every natural instinct we have as human beings? If you think about it, arguably, this is one of the hardest teachings of, in Scripture, to have a love for our enemies. If you think about when you first came to the Lord and you first started learning what it was like to walk as a Christ follower, there are things that are challenging but still doable. Yes, Jesus is my salvation. He's the only way. Love it. Okay, purity in all areas. That's going to be a challenge, but I can see the heart. Loving my enemies, hold up. And why is this a hard one? Because if somebody has hurt and wronged me, I want them to get what they deserve. I want them to get what I perceive to be justice. I don't want them to get away with it. In fact, think about it. When we watch movies and the villains get their comeuppance, what do we do? We cheer, we hoot, and we holler because that's what you deserve because you are a bad guy. Now, I've mentioned from this stage before, my favorite Christmas movie of all time is the movie Die Hard with Bruce Willis. Now, I usually have to quantify that. It's a Christmas movie because it takes place at Christmas, so it counts. Now, if you've never seen Die Hard, Bruce Willis is this brash New York, New York City cop named John McClane. He's in L.A., and he's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And in movies, being in the wrong place at the wrong time usually means terrorists. And so if you remember, the late, great Alan Rickman played Hans Gruber. And they spend this movie going back and forth with each other. Now, I'm going to spoil this movie because you've had 40 years to watch it. <laughs> But at the very end, what does John McClane do? He throws Hans Gruber off a building. Now, I've seen this movie multiple times because it's one of my favorite. And every time we get to that scene when he lets Hans Gruber go, what am I doing? I'm cheering. I'm going, woo, yeah, he got what he deserved. It would be an awful two movie to me if it ended with them hugging and saying, let's go get yogurt together. <laughs> and why? Because justice was served, right? Now, on that point, let me be very clear of what I'm talking about here. The command to love our enemies is not to ignore justice. Yeah. 
Justice and love is not one or the other. They actually work side by side. And so again, hear me clearly. The command to love our, love our enemies is not a command to ignore civil, criminal, or even divine justice. But what this command is calling, it's calling a condition of our heart. In fact, it's calling a radical condition. And this is where trusting in the Lord very much comes, becomes key. Because when I think about loving my enemies, there is nothing in me that can do this. There is no power or no strength I have that is going to accomplish this. The only way I am going to have a supernatural love for my enemies is by being filled with the supernatural power, the spirit of the risen Messiah. I mentioned that there might be nothing harder we're called to do in our lives, right? But when we love our enemies as God has called us to, there may be nothing that sends a clear message in our culture that the love of Jesus is real and the love of Jesus is powerful and the love of Jesus unites. Look at how Jesus himself put it in the Gospel of Luke, there in your note sheet. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. That's not saying that we will earn our, our salvation, but it's saying that as his children, we will reflect who God is. You will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is one of the most difficult commands we are given, but it's one that the Lord repeated often because it's so close to his heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, love your enemies. Again, in the Gospel of Luke, he teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan where we're shown radical love for your enemies. Now, this is a difficult prospect to begin to do and to do this well, to begin to live this out. What we first need to do is we need to see the big picture. We need to see how God himself has modeled a radical love for his enemies. Because remember, the Lord has never asked us to live in any way that he has not done himself first. And so when we look at God the Father, how did God the, first of all, when we look at God the Father and we look at our relationship with him, do you realize that before you gave your life to Jesus, before you were all in and submitted to Jesus, you were God's enemy? In the book of Romans chapter five, the apostle uses that word. He says, we were God's enemy. See, when you look at scripture and it refers to sinners, another way of saying sinners is God's enemies. Now, there's some of us in here that when we look at our life before Jesus, we might characterize that as being a life that was in the dark or a life that was off the rails or a life where we were making bad decisions. But the reality, the gravity of sin is it makes us God's enemies because we commit treason against the king. And so with that powerful statement, how did God the Father treat his enemies? He gave them his son. He not only gave them his son, he sacrificed the life. He shed the blood of his son so that his enemies would have hope for a new life. We see this in the life of the son himself, Jesus. How did Jesus treat his enemies? Well, one clear example is that he called them to be his followers. When you look at 
the 12 disciples themselves, I've talked about this before, that they were sinners. They were the enemies and God brought them together. When you look at within those 12 disciples, we said that some of them were pretty vile individuals. You had a tax collector who was a traitor to his Jewish race and had joined the oppressive Roman government. You had a Simon, the zealot, who whether he did this himself or not, the zealots were down with assassinations and they were terrorists of the Roman Empire. You had Judas who was a betrayer and had a darkness in him and yet the Lord called these people to be his followers, to be something new. When we go to the New Testament, we see what he did in the life of the Apostle Paul. Please do not forget the type of man that Paul was before Jesus came into his life. See, Paul was the cause for bloodshed in the Christian family. Paul was the cause of persecution, of hunting, of slaughtering. Because of Paul's actions, families were broken apart. Because of Paul's actions, people that profess the name of Jesus died. If you would ask the early church to describe the man known as Saul, they would have called him a terrorist. And the Lord died for him. The Lord even said, you are persecuting me. You are my enemy. And I'm going to change your life. On his cross, what did Jesus say about his enemies? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See, what was true then is true now. That the love of Jesus is so great that he takes the sinners, the enemies, he takes the adulterer, he takes the criminal, he takes the murderer, he takes the addict, he takes the broken, he takes the pornographer, he takes the narcissist, he takes the greedy, he takes the idolater, he takes the fill in the blank, he takes his enemies and through his death and resurrection, he transforms them into his beloved children. And then he asks us to love in that same way. And again, hear me clearly, to love our enemies does not mean that we pretend or we ignore the hurt that we've received from them. To love our enemies does not, pray, does not mean that we don't pray or take action to see justice be taken care of. In a world right now where we are seeing global atrocities, many of these atrocities happening to the brothers and sisters in Christ, loving our enemies does not mean that we don't pray for swift action and justice against that but what the Lord is calling us to do is he's calling us through the power of his name, through the power of Holy Spirit to supernaturally look past the external because the external, when it comes to our enemies, all we see is sin. The Lord is calling us to supernaturally look past that and to look deeper in, in some cases, very hidden, very buried, but to see that all of creation has God's divine image. So the Lord asks us to show love to our enemies the Lord asks us to not withhold the compassion as Paul did in front of his enemies to still preach the name of Jesus because many times it's our enemies that need that message the most. And what happens when we do? The world changes. Loving our enemies is difficult. But loving our enemies is such an indisputable sign that Jesus is real and his love is bigger than we can imagine. 
when we choose to follow the example of Jesus and love our enemies. Do you know what message we are sending to a hostile culture? When we choose to love, we are saying that we stand in the name of Jesus, that we stand filled in his spirit, that no matter what adversity, no matter what hardship, no matter what hostility we face, we will not be broken, we will not stop, because what is at stake is souls. The kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is real, and just as he saved my life, he will save yours, despite what you think of me. The message is bigger than us. You know, I was at a recent lecture and I was listening to somebody talk about the early church and they brought up this point that one of the things that a hostile culture found so attractive about the early church was how they loved their enemies, was that they loved the people that were killing them, was that they did not retaliate in violence and in hate, but they retaliated with a supernatural forgiveness and a message that Jesus can still change your life. And that's what we're called to. Frederick Bucher, there on your note sheet, he's an American theologian. He writes, the world is bewildered by its saints. That's us. We are God's saints. The world is bewildered by its saints. And then there is a love for the enemy, love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. And underline this last phrase, it conquers the world. Loving our enemies is not a passive, weak love. It is a conquering love because it was God's love for his enemies that conquered sin and death. And if we want to conquer an unbelieving world, we will do it with his supernatural love. Now, this is difficult. For many of us, learning how to carry this out is going to be a long journey and it's going to be nuanced depending on your story, your background, and your hurts. But what I want to do with just the time we have left, I want to give you just four starting points, four starting steps to take to begin this journey. The first one is this. It begins with one of the most difficult prayers you're ever going to pray, but yet one of the richest prayers you're ever going to pray. Father, show me the love you have for those that hurt me. Father, show me the love you have for your enemies. When we pray, the Lord responds, and he'll begin to show us how he sees his creation. The second step, and these are all in the posture of prayer, is to identify. What I mean by that is before the Lord, we need to identify who are your enemies? Who have you labeled your enemies? My simple definition, in all seriousness, who in your life do you want to see burn? Who in your life that if the ground opened up and swallowed them, you really wouldn't care? And it's awful to say out loud, isn't it? But the reality is we carry some of this with us. So who are your enemies? Is it people on a, that have an opposing viewpoint politically? Is it people that morally have a different viewpoint? Is it people that we perceive to be sinners or such destitute sinners? Is it people that have a different theological view within the church? Whatever is it, people that have hurt you as a family members, friends, ex-friends, co-workers, groups of people, whoever it may be, who are the people we have identified as our enemies? The third step in the posture of prayer is repent of your sins against them. Now hear me clearly. Anger towards sin in and of itself is not a sin. It's not the anger that gets us in trouble. Usually it's what we do because of that anger. 
What I mean by that is what did we see in the Pharisees' example? They were so angered by what they view as sin that they decided to sin themselves. And that is never the way. There are times in my life where I'm so angered by sin that I respond with violent and destroying words. There are times in my life where I've been so angered by sin that I have responded with violence physically itself. Think about that. Have you traded hate with hate? Have you responded to sin with sin? Because that is not our way. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when they curse, we bless. And so we want to have a clear conscience. And then the final step is we pray for them. And when you pray for them, don't hold back how you feel about them. Be honest. Share your hurt. Share your anger. Share your frustration. Share your most, share your most honest and aggressive feelings. But remember that you're talking to their father. And just as our lives have been changed, pray that their lives would be changed too. Do you think that there were people in the early church that wanted to see Paul burn? Do you think that there are people in the early church that would look at the man named Saul of Tarsus and said, there is no hopelessness in him. There is no way he would ever see Jesus as his Messiah. Thank God he is not limited by our sight. So as we wrap things up, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And again, the model of the apostle is that we are called to live a life that is consumed by the love of Jesus. Again, it's not a perfect or a blameless life, but it's one in which we say we are all in. And in the face of hostility, it's one where we don't hide, but we say, no, I will stand for the name of Jesus. I will stand for the love of his word. I will learn to love like only he can, and yet he gives me the ability to love as well, and that becomes loving my enemies. So as we go into this last song, we're going to sing a song about surrendering. It is a beautiful act, and let that be our prayer. Church at Rocky Peak, let this be what we are saying, that we are surrendering, and we are sold out totally to our risen Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you loved your enemies. Thank you that in your word you display just how passionate you are for us. Thank you that you didn't just see rebellion and treason, but you saw your image. You saw a love that surpasses all understanding. Father, thank you that you teach us to be more like you, that not only do you call us to love your word, to love our enemies the way you have, but you give us the resources to do so. And so as a church, we stand united and we say we are all in. We are totally committed to you, Lord. There's only death or there's life, and we have chosen life. We stand here imperfect. We stand here and we are flawed, but we have the perfect one in us. Father, as we recite this last song and we say that we surrender, that is a powerful statement. Surrendering is not losing. It is not a white flag. It is saying that my way led me to death, but your way leads me to life. I surrender, and in surrender, I find power. In surrender, I find justice. In surrender, I find encouragement and purpose and identity. We surrender, Jesus, and we are open to receiving the power that comes with surrendering to the risen Messiah. In your son's name, we all declare, amen. Let's stand together. You know, have you ever stopped and wondered that in a culture that was so hostile to the early church, 
why anybody in that time would become a Christ follower. It seemed like all the public was against him. It seemed like all they faced was persecution and hardship, and yet they grew and grew and grew. And how they grew was through imperfect, flawed, yet committed Christ followers who consumed themselves with the Holy Spirit of God and went out into their world. And for a time such as this, today in 2016, that is exactly what our world needs now. Our world needs to see that the Lord calls the imperfect. The Lord calls the Lord calls the imperfect. The Lord calls the ones with blames and spots, but he changes them from the inside out. That the Lord calls the committed. And it's in that commitment, in the face of adversity, people will see that Jesus, the real Jesus, is risen. People will see that is what Jesus is all about, and we will grow. Amen? Amen. So remember that as you leave this place this week, that is your calling. The Lord has told you, take courage, because your testimony matters. The Lord has sent you. And so as a set people, remember to obey that commitment. If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right along that wall are some amazing men and women who are part of our prayer ministry. They would love to pray with you before they would love to pray with you and encourage you in that way. As Michael mentioned, next week we're going to be starting our special two-week series, Culture in Crisis. And what a great message in Acts to prepare ourselves for that. As again, we continue to look at what is our commitment to being a light in a dark world. Let me encourage you, not just to be here, but to bring a friend, somebody that the Lord can use and change their lives. Hey, for those of you that are going to pick up your kids, I always like to say this, they do such an amazing job over there. Would you just love and just greet, which is, would you just love and encourage the amazing workers of taking care of your kids for the last service? Love you guys. We'll see you in a couple, in, in a week.